The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. It's always great to be here with all of you wonderful, wonderful followers out there and listeners. Today, you're going to be very excited. We have an author and executive director of Winning Incorporated of America, uh, truly a wonderful man. I know you're going to enjoy this show. Welcome to the show, Phil Brooks. Thank you so much, Joyce. It's uh, my pleasure, and certainly I'm honored to be with you today. Uh, I just, uh, I'm really excited about uh, talking with you about our programs. Oh well, we're we're excited to have you also. But you know, Thank for you. our listeners across America, why don't you start by talking a little bit about your background, just so they'll become familiar with you? Okay. Well, you know, 50 years of coaching and education. It's difficult to sum up in a short sentence or two, but I'll try my best. Take your time. Uh, Go ahead. Okay. When I, uh, when I was growing up, uh, my dream was playing pro football and baseball. And I spent most of my time as a youngster uh, playing sports and uh, was a gifted athlete. And in high school, I ended up making, you know, all-state teams and, and uh, doing some things uh, competitively that were pretty good and so I was recruited for college football after my sophomore year and I think that was a real life-changing event for me because I became a more serious student at that point and uh, and then another thing uh, what happened was in 1955 I was a freshman in college and I think this changed my whole perspective of life and and what happened there I was in a football practice uh we were having a, a scrimmage. I carried the football, no place to go. I put my head down and literally broke my helmet from the front to the back. Ended up with a fractured skull, a concussion. Uh, I was out uh, and woke up about two or three days later. But it changed my life because I changed from a playing perspective to a coaching and an education perspective where I wanted to help kids uh, realize their full potential. So I graduated from Albion College uh, in 1960, and I started uh, teaching science in high school and coaching football and baseball. And uh, went along a few years, decided it was time to get my master's degree. So I got my master's degree in cellular physiology from Oklahoma State. And at that time, uh, my last year there, in 1968, I was offered an opportunity to get my Ph.D. in genetics and I seriously thought about it, but, you know, the love of the game <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and missing that, that spontaneity of coaching and working with kids uh, had me remain as a head football coach for almost 50 years. And so one of the other things that really made a difference in my life is when I left high school in 1971 and became an associate professor and head football coach at Alma College. I stayed there 20 years and uh, retired in 1990, uh, took a position at Eastern Michigan, and then decided that uh, I ought to really retire. So we moved to St. Joe, Michigan, uh, where I started a 501c3, and that was Winning Inc. of America, working with kids uh, who were at-risk kids, and we concentrated on sports and literacy. And then in 2005, I thought I'd better really retire after I became a principal at a local Catholic school. They kind of talked me into working for them. So I was a football coach and the principal there. In 2005, uh, retired permanently to concentrating on winning Inc. of America and doing some other things. For about 500 great kids at Ben Harbor Boys and Girls Club. 
And uh, at that time, I thought maybe I ought to try to my 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 hand in writing. And so I authored two books from 2007 to 2011. So I think that sums up my life-changing moments and also all the fun years that I had working with so many thousands of kids over that period of time. Wow. That's all I have to say. That Those are quite great accomplishments. I, I do have to ask you one thing, though. <clears throat> when you had that accident where you fractured your skull... <clears throat> and you, you know, finally came to in the hospital. Uh, how did you deal with that? How did you feel about that? Well, at first, uh, I had a hard time because the doctor came in and told me that's the last time I'm ever going to play football. And I had a difficult time with it for a few days. Uh, the head football coach, Morley Frazier, at Albion College, came to me and he said, Phil, he said, I know you love football. I know you love working with kids. And he says, I'd like to make you a student assistant coach on our football team if you'd be willing to do that when you come back. And that might fill the void of of, uh, not playing. And I gave that some serious thought, and that that really made an impact on me. I had to drop out of school for a half a year because uh, I was having a lot of serious problems uh, thinking and reading and focusing my eyes and headaches and that type of thing. But when I came back... uh, in the in the uh, January of that year, and then the next season worked as an assistant, as a student. It really helped me grow as a professional. Made a huge difference in my life. So this is while you were in college. Yes, that was while mm-hmm. I was in college. Well, I'll tell you what. We have many employees uh, that I've had, but, but many many people across America with traumatic brain injury, and just as you said, fortunately for you, you recovered from all this, but, you know, some people have permanent uh, short-term memory loss, uh, long-term memory loss. I'm very fortunate I, too, had a traumatic brain injury that resulted in brain surgery, and I am, you know, very blessed that uh, I had this miraculous recovery. But right now, that is the number one injury for servicemen and women coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And and just yesterday, I was at the Naval Air Systems Command, and as I sit there, and I'll say on the air, by the way, just a momentary aside, anyone that does not give an opportunity to one of these servicemen or women when they return, shame on you. Shame on you. I I agree. but, Phil, that, that is great. You did not only have that recovery, but that that person gave you the opportunity, you know, to be an assistant coach. And I, and I think he saw some things in me that, that uh, you know, really helped me as a person to grow and the opportunity to work with other kids. Uh, and the things that I learned from the staff uh, were amazing. And so when I went out to become a head football coach at the high school level, I was way advanced from the normal individual who graduates with a bachelor's degree from college and and goes out after playing for four years. So it helped me immensely. And and, uh, there's no question, uh, traumatic brain injuries are are serious, serious problems. And I had a a serious problem for a number of years, but uh, overcame it. And uh, hopefully, uh, uh, you know, those things... Uh, it made a difference, I think, in my philosophy of football as well as coaching because I made sure that kids' helmets every single year were reconditioned or brand new, and I fit every individual's helmet every single year by myself to make sure that that they wouldn't run into the same kind of problems. So it helped me in terms of safety and working with kids. Well, while you're on that topic, we do have a question from a listener. Remember, everyone, you can call in. Uh, many people emailed prior to the show, or you can reach me on Twitter. But this question that was emailed uh, prior to the show was, uh, Mr. Brooks, I know from your writing you've been very involved in football. Uh, just the other night, Anderson Cooper had a show about high school football players that have had major concussions and actually a young man that died from impact. My question to you is, what could be done to prevent these terrible accidents? Well, that's a great question, and I'll tell you, I thought about that 
over the course of the 50 years that I that I coached. The one thing I did was I made sure, and I think every coach can do this, that every single player, regardless of whether age, size, ability, make sure that those young people learn the skills that are necessary in order to be successful in football. And I'm talking about proper tackling. I'm talking about proper blocking techniques and making sure they have the proper strength, the ability to to uh, react in situations so they have the balance that they need and they have the flexibility. And they, when we uh, had our practices, we started out every single day, every year, whether it was high school or college, the same way, teaching the same basic skills for anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes, not taking it for granted that any youngster was ahead or behind, but just working with every single individual to make sure that they tackled properly, that they blocked properly, that they uh, they had the uh, the ability to perceive what was going to happen to them in the course of the game, and they could react to it properly. And I think that's the huge difference. Uh, and the drills that we used were common-sense drills that didn't involve uh, the kids taking risk or chances like so many that you see that coaches use uh, for years and years, and I was involved in some of those when I was a player, uh, bull in the ring and things that where you send two young people to, uh, to, to go out and have one individual attack the two. Those kinds of things are not related to football. So my final answer is this. Any drill that a coach has, should be related exactly to what takes place in a competitive game. And so the skills that are needed for that game to be successful should be the skills and the drills that are practiced on a daily basis. Yeah, because what a horrible thing. I mean, for a high school student playing football uh, and then to have a serious concussion or worse yet, like this example the listener talked about where the person died, that is terrible. That's tragic, Joyce, and it shouldn't yeah. happen. You know, and they're coming out with better helmets. Uh, some of the helmets today, of course, are getting very, very expensive, and that may end up uh, eliminating some high school programs uh, if they go to that. Uh, if they go to the point where they require that kind of uh, uh, equipment to be used, but a good high school helmet or a good college helmet uh, can be fit on a young man properly. And if that young man is taught the proper skills, uh, chances are that that individual is going to go through pretty much uh, free of any kind of concussion or major hit because their head is always in the proper position. And uh, that's the problem you run into is when kids drop their heads in tackling. I saw it in a program just uh, last week where a defensive back came in and dropped his head I closed my eyes and I said, I hope he doesn't become paralyzed. Mm-hmm. But uh, kids take chances and we have to make sure that they're taught properly so they're taught not to take chances and do it the right way. Right. <clears throat> right, and I hope that you all are hearing this because I do feel strongly about it. I know that Merrill Hodge, my friend, <coughs> who, as you all know, is now an analyst on ESPN, is very, very big on this because when he played for the uh, Bears, he had, after leaving the Steelers, uh, you probably all remember, he had a very terrible concussion that he almost died. I mean, it was terrible. So I know he's very big on that also. But we are going to get ready to go to break. Hey, if you just joined us, we're talking to Phil Brooks, author and executive director of Winning Incorporated of America. Such a great man. Really excited to have him. We're going to be right back with Phil. This is Joyce Bender at voiceamerica.com. We'll be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. How has your belief system been formed? Has it been based on others telling you what to believe? Do you desire to make changes in your life that you know will bring you deeper fulfillment? Tune in to The Ripple Effect with Catherine Cloward for your weekly dose of inspiration and encouragement. Whether it be in your business, personal relationships, or family life, this show will help you recognize and trust your intuitive knowing. Catherine and her guests will help inspire you to make fulfilling choices for your life. The Ripple Effect is heard live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop, and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back to the show. Here we are with Phil Brooks author and executive director of Winnie Incorporated of America. And, Phil, uh, on the last segment of the show, you did talk a little bit about, oh, I'm going to decide to start writing. Uh, what made you do that? I mean, what, what made you even think of writing? Had you done this in your past, or what led you in that direction? Well, in, in 1968, I wrote my thesis, and pretty much all my work, as a head college football coach and a head high school coach, was uh, pretty much nonfiction that I worked with in regards to either writing or reading, and also as an associate professor at Alma College. You know, I wrote some uh, nonfiction articles for coaching magazines. Uh, my thesis was the effects of exercise on human thermal regulation. And so I really enjoyed the discovery process where. I had to go in and learn as much as I could about writing at the, the specific topic. And so after I retired in 2005, I honestly really missed not necessarily the football, the preparation and everything, but there was a, a void that I had about the spontaneity and working with kids and developing the chemistry of that competitive football team. And so... Uh, I was talking with my wife one day, and she said, you know what, the best thing you know is about football and about kids. Why don't you think about writing a book about football? And so it, it kind of set me on a uh, on a mission. And uh, we together went to the archives at Notre Dame and University of Chicago and a number of other places. And, and again, that discovery and research process I wanted to learn all I could about football when it first started. And so what I found was that there were so many irregularities in regards to who, who threw the first pass, who caught the first, what college was involved in the passing game, and when did it start. And there were so many things that were wrong that were actually written uh, in the history of the game. And uh, what I wanted to do, my goal was to set the record straight and make sure that people knew uh, that uh, the official book was setting that record straight in regards to who threw the first pass, who was responsible for it, and what college, what year, and why. And that led to a lot of research for me and a lot of fun writing my first book. Well, that is 
really something that, you know, that you just went in this direction, and wow, you did a great job. Uh, that book, Forward Pass, The Play That Saved Football, uh, is, this the, is that the book you're talking about? Yeah, that's the one. And what I found was that the game was so vicious and so violent in 1905 that Teddy Roosevelt, our president, was going to call an executive order to have the game changed or else he was going to cancel and abolish football across the country. So changes needed to be made. And in 1906, uh, they came back with new rules. So what I like to do is go in and talk with high school and elementary and middle school kids about the historical perspective of why football remains today. And it's basically because of rule changes safety that was uh, safety factors that were taken into consideration and the one major one in 1906 was the forward pass well you know i want to talk about your other book but since you we are talking about this forward pass the play that saved football for anyone out there that loves football or has a family member that loves football uh phil how would they purchase this book well I've got a website, and uh, my book is pretty much available on all the online places right now. For example, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Powell'sBooks.com. And my publisher was Tate Publishing, and so if they go to TatePublishing.com, my book is also available by ebook, so you can download it from Tate Publishing. It will be available at other places with ebook, but right now that's the only place. And uh, there's a number of uh, there's a number of sources that can be used if you just plug in the name of my new book, The Maroon Knights. It brings up a number of websites uh, to hit on. And uh, my last one is if you take The Maroon Knights and put dot and tateauthor.com, then it brings it up to my specific website which I have five different pages on the winning program, my book about the forward pass, my book about the Maroon Knights, and also my own profile. So that's probably the best way to sum it up. Uh, what is that website? My website is www.themaroonknights.tateauthor.com. Okay. Um, well, you know, I just wanted to bring that up also because, of course, my listeners are interested in, you know, your other book that you have written. But I, I want to tell you that Mary, who works for me, uh, how this all came to be that I really wanted to get you on the show is that she told me about you because as the chair of AAPD, I have made Stopping Bullying a national initiative. So let's start by you telling our listeners about that book, The Maroon Knights. Well, The Maroon Knights uh, came about, uh, first of all, because I was, uh, I was talking about the forward pass in my daughter's class at Imagine School in Northport to a group of third, fourth, and fifth graders. And uh, a little guy in the back room, uh, Dion, put his hand up. And he said, Coach, he says, this is a great book. I love football. But he says, why don't you write a football book about about football and uh, for kids like us? And I said, Dion, I says, I'll tell you what, what a great idea. I says, when I come back here the next time, I'll have a book for you just like you want. And so uh, when I sat down to put the storyline together, uh, I felt, that the Forward Pass nonfiction book made such an impact in my life and other people's lives that read it, particularly as a coach, because so many coaches uh, made a difference in 1906 that saved the game that allowed me to coach for 50 years. And so many things happened to me as a youngster. For an example, uh, we were exposed to bullying. Uh, I was exposed to some bullying as an adult. And when I started coaching, my one rule for whether it was in the classroom, whether it was on the football field, whether we were in a team meeting, 
was absolutely everybody was to have paramount respect for their peers, for the staff, and for everybody that was involved in our program. And when I became a principal, pretty much the same thing. If you're going to develop a good school, the number one thing in that school is respect for your peers, the staff, and everyone else. And so we really, uh, I would say, dealt with bullying or anti-bullying by making sure that the person uh, on the team or the person in the classroom or the person in the school uh, was respectful of themselves, respectful of everyone else, and made sure that they followed what expectations we had as a school. And uh, our expectations were that everyone was important, everyone's life was important, regardless of, you know, what color, what religion, what age, what size, uh, what they looked like. And so we made sure that we had student leadership within our schools and on our football teams to uh, uh, be advocates or friends of those kids that stood out for whatever reason a bully uh, picks on. And uh, we, we really diminished, and I can't say we probably got rid of all bullying, but we really diminished probably 90 to 95% of all bullying within our teams, within our classrooms, within our school, and within our community. But it takes an active uh, adult with leadership and an active adult who has an open door, an active adult who cares about kids in order to make sure that those kinds of things don't play, take place under their uh, direction. So the book... Uh, I put together the Maroon Knights takes place in 1906, and it involves a forward pass. But I had to get that bullying part in there because I wanted to use that book as a tool in the classroom so that students are introduced to kids who are bullied and they could learn and connect with those kids. How do you deal with bullying? Uh, how did those young people deal with bullying? And it takes, uh, and I think empowers the teachers in a classroom when they're using the Maroon Knights because the learning environment from the book, as they're discussing it, uh, makes a great relevant tool for discussing anti-bullying. And that's tough to do in schools, just to start out and say, okay, we're going to talk about bullying. And immediately, a lot of times, kids get turned off uh, and don't want to listen or don't care. And it's difficult to change that culture. And so the book that we put together uh, with with a, a, a sixth graders and seventh graders, involving them in football, involving them in what kids really enjoy reading about, and, and connecting that with bullying uh, made, a, I think, a, a huge, huge difference in a lot of kids' lives. And there have been hundreds of young people read that book and just they tell me they can't put it down they tell me it's one of the best books they've ever read and they say charlie and benny are their best friends and when kids connect with characters in that way and the historical perspective that they get out of this book it makes me feel fantastic well that should make you feel fantastic um we do have um i do have a question for you as you well know, I mentioned to you earlier that I'm trying to stop uh, everything I can in reference to bullying students living with disabilities. And I have to tell you, they are brutally bullied every day. Uh, and w what advice do you have for them? For anyone listening to the show, what advice do you have for them? Well, I agree with you. The number one source of any school or societal violence today is bullying, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in school, whether it's on teams. And, and it's, it's a difficult issue because there's so much modeling of bullying today by adults. And so when I talk with young people, the first and foremost thing I say is don't blame yourself for being bullied. Uh, the person is bullying you 
because they are the weak ones. They have a problem socially, emotionally, and they're having a tough time dealing with it. And they're trying to they're trying to uh, control someone else and and overpower that individual to to try to make themselves stronger. And so the bully to me is a bad guy or girl because of these social weaknesses or their lack of skills. And uh, what we need to understand is that we work with kids so that we focus on their positive aspects. In other words, when you have a youngster with either a disability or non-disability and they're being picked on, they're being sought out by that bully because of some reason. And the bully either looks at them as being different, uh, sensitive, uh, not very strong, not very confident. And so 60% of kids with disabilities suffer bullying. And about 30% of the general population are bullied. So it's really important that the youngster who's being bullied uh, believes in themselves because of their accomplishments and they they develop a strong mind and they develop a self-awareness about their strengths and weaknesses. So they need to focus on what they have done well, either in school or in band or in clubs or developing friends, uh, whatever it might be, whatever their positive accomplishment is, they ought to really focus on that. And they need also to connect with with peers who respect them and also who are respect advocates. And that's something that we developed within our schools and uh, develop those kids as either close uh, uh, close relationship or close friendship so that those kids can come to the uh, uh, they can come and help when an individual is fa- finds himself in a situation where they cannot deal with it. And the last thing I think is really important is that kids who are being bullied practice good communication skills and response skills so that they surprise the bully with their strength and with their strong voice and not in an angry response or not in a question which puts the ball then in the bully's court, but just say to that individual, you know, don't bother me, and then turn and walk away or do whatever you can to avoid that uh, that situation or those bullies or their the hangout area that they might be in. So those are the things that I think uh, I would give advice to kids, and that's what I... I did over the course of 50 years is that we tried to create a positive learning environment and then within that learning environment some things happened and you have to be able to deal with that either as an adult leader, a teacher, a coach, a principal, but the youngster has to be taught that they're the strong one, not the weak one, and that's I think that's critical. Well, you know what? Um I think one of the key things is the first thing you said about believing in yourself because, you know, the stronger you become, the easier it's going to be to, you know, fight against this. But I did have one question. I had one person brutally bullied, and I'll tell you what they did. They were able to befriend this one football player, and it's amazing how that stopped everything. You're right, and that's either a respect advocate or an individual who is an upperclassman or a senior or who plays an important positive role in the school. They might be, for an example, a class officer. They might be a football player. They might be an athlete in another sport or a leader in the band or a leader in, uh, in the student council. It's important to surround yourself with good people and uh, who are respectful of you and respectful of others. And, and that's, the, that's the key, I think, to avoiding uh, getting uh, picked on or chosen by a bully for whatever reason, again, that they, they happen to seek someone out. Okay, well, we have another question for you here from a listener, and it is, uh, Mr. Brooks, thanks for being on Joyce's show. My question is, 
What do you do if your child's being bullied at school and they go to their teachers, the guidance counselor, everyone, and no one is helping? Unfortunately, Joyce, that happens. And uh, it's because a number of schools or adults uh, don't see that bullying as a particular problem. And so the parent really needs, and I'm talking with the parent because I'm assuming that's a parent that is calling in, but it also could be uh, an older uh, sibling or someone who's in the family. But one of the most tragic things is when someone doesn't respond to the needs of that individual who's being bullied. And so the parent needs to get involved. And as a principal, when I was the principal of a high school, I made sure that we had we involved uh, almost like a neighborhood watch within our school system so that the, the custodial staff, the kitchen staff, the teaching staff, everybody, the coaching staff, uh, all, of, all of the people that were involved in that school, counselors and so on, were responsible for making sure that when they saw bullying, that was reported and taken to the pro- through the proper channels. And so when no one responds to you, it's, it's, uh, it, it's one of the most difficult things in the world because that's when emotions really start uh, grinding in kids and parents and they see a lack of leadership. And so what they need to do is they need to take the next step. They need to make sure they become involved so that they end up going to that school and making sure they confront the individuals who are in charge of that school in a good, positive way and make sure that they, uh, they're looking for the leadership that's necessary. If you can't do it by yourself, I, I've, I've had groups of parents come in who may have been concerned about something and sit and talk and bring it to my attention because uh, either it wasn't a focus or people weren't aware of it. And the, if you can get people to help you and support you, then that needs to be dealt with uh, in, in that kind of a capacity. So, it's, it's, again, it's difficult and it's frustrating and you think there's no end to it, but you just have to keep being persistent. And sometimes it means maybe changing a school uh, because that particular school is unresponsive. Maybe it means going to the school board. In other words, someone who is ultimately responsible for the direction and expectations within that school. But somewhere along the line, you should get a, a positive response. And if you don't, uh, then I think probably the best thing to do would be to remove your student or your child from that environment. And if it means homeschooling for a short period of time or transferring to another school or a school of choice. And the nice thing today, there are other alternatives because schools of choice have made in charter schools and and private schools and, and homeschooling has become so much easier today than it was years and years ago. Yeah. You know, I have a question about that. Uh, Phil, what would happen if that uh, parent, uh, and as you said, was able to get someone else with them, what if they went to the school board? Do, do people ever do that? Absolutely. There's no question. You, I mean, you you have the right as an individual, because the school board is a representative of your community. And so you could have, for an example, uh, you could could have, uh, for an example, a meeting with concerned parents. Uh, Post that meeting on, uh, you know, on uh, the school web, or if you can't get the school to do it, uh, post it to a group of, of parents through the students' email and say, we're meeting on such and such a night and we want to discuss this. The main thing is, I think, is to make sure that you leave individuals out of the uh, conversation and deal with the issue as a whole, and it becomes a school issue rather than Principal Brooks or, you know, Miss Joyce the teacher or 
because then people become defensive and immediately they try to find reasons to rationalize why they shouldn't do it or they haven't done it or they are doing it but maybe you know people aren't seeing the whole picture uh so they they come up with rationalizations or issues and trying to justify what took place you don't want that to happen what you want to happen is to show them the 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 program is weak it needs to be strengthened it needs to be a complete community program that involves absolutely everyone from the police to businesses to neighborhood watch groups to to parents to the students and all the different people in the staff in the school and once you get that all those people on board uh you'd be surprised because then individuals can't say well i didn't know or i didn't see or it, it i i didn't expect that to happen because they want to make excuses because it's easier not to get involved than it is to get involved because once you get involved you got to do something about it and that's that sometimes uh, people don't want to get get uh, wrapped up into something that they feel is going to take time or is going to uh, you know create some controversy and so that is really important that you get people involved and more people involved i agree and for that listener or anyone listening to the show i just want to say don't back down speak up I mean, take every possible avenue, superintendent, principal, and school board. And and as Phil said, get people to go with you. I mean, you know, if none of that works, then I, you know, would change schools. But I think if you speak loudly enough with enough people that, you know, something is going to happen. But, Phil, I want to make sure we have time to ask you uh, these last few questions because, I know that our listeners will love to hear them. Uh, first, I wanted to ask you, uh, obviously, you, you've had someone have a great impact on you to do so many wonderful things and to be such a giving, caring person. And my question is, who is that? Who was your role model? Well, it might surprise you, Joyce. But, you know, my mother and father were wonderful people, and they, they made me grow up with the values that I needed. But... There was an individual in my life who stood out uh, so uh, strongly that made such an impact on my life. And when I was born, he was 71 years old, and that was my grandfather, my mother's dad, Frank Mm -hmm. Munger. He was blind. He was crippled. He was confined to a rocking chair. And as I was out at the farm, they owned a farm of about 80 acres. I spent my life growing up at the farm. I was born in 1937. Life was a little more simple, a little slower, and particularly in a rural area. But he was my best friend and mentor. And when you see a a man who is blind and crippled and 71 years of age, he was positive. Uh, He taught me so much about uh, life. Uh, He was so loving, so respectful, so patient, and he was so wise. And he told me, stories and worldly stories about uh, from all different points of views and his world was his mind and he taught me that my mind was my most valuable asset and strength and i had to develop that mind and if i did i could conquer any challenge and uh one of the things that really impressed me the most and changed my life he always wanted, and he said this, as a blind man, he said, I would love to see you play football when I was in high school. And believe it or not, uh, when I was a junior, I think a sophomore, junior, junior, and senior, there were two years that the local radio station decided to replay the game on Saturday morning. And so those replays where we had the game announced at home, I would ride my bike out, the farm, which was three miles out, sit down with my grandfather, and we'd listen to the game the night before. And he'd visualize that game, ask me questions about you know what I did, how I did it, and uh, it, it, it just it was uh, it was a heartwarming and uh, a relationship that we had 
that was absolutely unbelievable. And I grew up pretty much as a little kid sitting on his lap, and then, of course, as uh, as I became a teenager, sat beside him and learned so much about the world. So that's that's who my role model was, and I'm so proud. And he was born in 1866, by the way. Wow! And so he, he well, he obviously a... he obviously had a great impact on you. What a what a wonderful story! Thank you know, you. Phil, I want to make sure that I get this in before I ask you these other last two questions. Winning Incorporated America. Could you quickly tell everyone what that is? Yeah, it's a nonprofit, 501c3, and it's basically a literacy program. Today, we started in 1993. And we work with the Boys and Girls Club of Benton Harbor, over 500 kids. And we run after-school and summer literacy programs. After-school are about three hours long, and we deal with anywhere from two to 300 youngsters in the evening. In the summer, we deal with anywhere from four to 500 kids, and we offer uh, individualized literacy recovery for the kids and have I, uh, st- uh, staff of about 35 teachers over the course of the year that work with these kids. And pretty much it's in an individualized, uh, positive learning environment so that the kids are taught at their own level. It isn't like a school setting where everybody learns pretty much out of the same book. We've got about $15,000 worth of leveled books. And uh, we we test the kids with a pre-test, and we also test them with post-test to find out the growth that they have, and we work, again, with their individualized level uh, on a year-round basis. And this came to be, you started this? 1993, I started this because, again, we saw a real need in the Benton Harbor area. Uh, they had done away with summer programs, you know, cuts in the city, uh, left the city pretty void of, of kids' programs. And so we started a program with uh, public housing at that time. And then it just grew from there, and, and finally we uh, settled in with the Boys and Girls Club where we felt we could make the most impact. And there's a lot of different places that you can make a, a difference, but we felt the Boys and Girls Club was, was the place to be because there's so many great kids there. You know what? They say a great leader serves. So I would have to say, Phil, that you are a great leader. Thank you, Joyce. You are a very, very good man. Okay, well, these last two questions I have asked every guest, from senators to NFL stars to authors such as yourself, for the past nine years. And the next one seems the hardest to answer. Um, You, Phil, have accomplished, whoa, really a lot in your life. But what would you consider your greatest accomplishment? Well, other than marrying my high school sweetheart and <laughs> and the love of my life and living and growing a family over a 52-year period professionally, it's when I taught a 70-year-old Jamaican man in an adult ed program in 1991, and he could not read one word. And he had eight children who he put through college by working in different capacities in Jamaica. He moved to the United States, and, of course, immediately he couldn't get a driver's license. He couldn't read street signs. He had a very difficult time and couldn't hold a job because every job requires the ability to read. And so I worked with him for about four months, and at the end of four months, he read a paragraph to me, turned and told me all about the paragraph. We gave each other a high five and a big hug, and we both started crying. And a whole new world opened up for him. And I remember that so vividly because, you know, it's like that moment that pros say, let's go to Disney World. <laughs> you know, it was uh, it was just an amazing, moving move- moment for me. I mean, I've had so many great moments in coaching and teaching and writing. But to me, making a difference in one individual's life with that kind of impact is the greatest accomplishment, I think, that I ever associated with. And and I felt so good to be able to have the ability to change his life. Wow. That is a great story. Wow, what a great example, too. Well, 
My last question for you, Phil, is that if you had to leave just one one message with our listeners today, what would that message be? Well, when I walk out of Mass, the one song I think that that really uh, hits me the greatest and leaves me in tears is, Lord, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. And if we would all take that moment and understand that respect begins with me and it's my responsibility to make that respect and that love contagious, uh, then we're going to make a difference in someone's life. And, uh, again, that song just uh, uh, is a, is a tearjerker to me, and it moves me so much every time I hear, uh, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. So, Joyce, that's my, my final message. Uh, and I really appreciate and thank you for uh, allowing me to be able to, uh, to talk with you and, and, and listen to your great questions. And, and uh, above all, I just... I'm honored, and I was so pleased to meet you uh, when you visited Florida. Thanks, Joyce, so very much. Oh, well, it's an honor to have you on the show. I just want to say one more time, uh, Phil's books, The Maroon Knights, K-N-I-G-H-T-S, The Maroon Knights, great for young people, uh, talking about bullying. I mean, just a great story. And Forward Pass, the play that saved football. I know my husband read that book and loved it. And for any sports fan, I would recommend that Forward Pass, the play that saved football, and the Maroon Knights. Uh, Phil, I just want to thank you again for being on the show today. It has been a pleasure. And, you know, if, if anyone caught this show at the end, but you're wanting other young people to hear it, remember, these shows are all archived on voiceamerica.com and benderconsult.com. We end every show with a quote from a famous civil rights leader. And today, <clears throat> that quote is from Martin Luther King, Jr. He said, the time is always right to do what is right. Isn't that the truth? Absolutely. This, yeah, this is Joyce Bender, America's Voice on VoiceAmerica.com. See you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com.